this last part of the uh, book of Nehemiah, he closes the book in a really interesting way because, number one, it's very negative. And of course, in American culture, we don't like negative things. We like positive things. We like things to be upbeat, uh, even in Asian cultures, right? But he ends the book after doing all this work, this hard, grueling work of rebuilding uh, the people and the city of Jerusalem and the temple, he ends it very negatively. And he talks about pulling out people's hair and beating them and making them swear. Not exactly the kind of leader that we would like to have today in our modern day you know, church culture and society. But ultimately, God even used this, a strong personality like Nehemiah, to do his will. And in that sense, we shouldn't disparage how God works differently at different times in his, in his will. What we have to gain is what is God teaching us through this passage that was written thousands of years ago? What is God teaching us about himself and what he does in creation and his redemptive work in our lives today? There are two things he covers here. And these two things are interestingly, uh, even today, they kind of let you know where you stand in your relationship with God, interestingly enough, right? Um, one of the first things that seminaries will teach pastors in training is that the way that you can tell whether someone is mad at you or not is do they stop coming on, do they stop coming to worship? That's one of the first things, is the Sabbath, right? Um, and that was true, you know, for many years here, but it is also, it was the litmus test for Nehemiah and his people as well in their relationship with God. The keeping of the Sabbath, and secondly, marriage and the family. Those are two issues that we as believers can profit from even today, right? Now, things are different between now and the Old Testament times when Nehemiah was talking about it. We're going to go into that. But just keep that in mind as we look into the details, because I don't want you to get lost in the details of what's happening here in Nehemiah. But I want you to keep in mind that ultimately, everything that we're going to cover right now about what was happening there concerning the Sabbath and concerning marriage and the family, that it pertains to us. Right? There is a message that God is telling us today from these words that were, that were written a long time ago. So let's take a look at the Sabbath. You know, the Old Testament actually emphasizes the keeping of the Sabbath. From Genesis to Exodus, right? From creation to God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. There is a strong emphasis on the Sabbath. Exodus 16, God himself, he commands the people to keep the Sabbath. Exodus 31, Exodus 35, Numbers 15. These are all passages where the death penalty was required for those who broke the Sabbath. You heard me right. People got killed in the Old Testament for breaking the Sabbath. Right? That's how important it was. I'm going to revisit that a little bit in a little bit. In Genesis, God rested on the seventh day and he blessed it and he made it holy. That's the Sabbath. 
Now, the seventh day is actually Saturday, right? Because Sunday is the first day of the week, and Saturday is the last day. So it was actually Saturday. And the Jews, they actually kept the Sabbath, not on Sunday, but on Saturday. Now, if you're thinking, why do we worship on Sunday then? We'll get to that. Now, in history, keeping the Sabbath is unknown in the ancient world. There is no culture that was surrounding Israel that kept the Sabbath like the Israelites did. This was a practice that was very unique and distinctive and weird and strange and culturally awkward. When you think about all the other nations that are kind of doing the same thing, but Israel's kind of doing its own thing, right? And it, fi- and it finds its ground in Genesis chapter 2, where God rested, and he blessed the seventh day. Now, in Nehemiah's time, he was trying to bring the people back to the word of God and in serving God according to the word of God. And there was a time when the people, when they heard the word of God, they trembled and they repented. They genuinely were affected by what God's word was saying. But what's interesting is by the end of Nehemiah, these people who had such a profound emotional experience with God's word, they were still not living according to it. In some ways that's interesting, in some ways it's not, because we still struggle with that today, right? We know what's right, but we don't do it. Even Paul talked about it in Romans 7, right? The thing that he should do, he doesn't do, and the thing that he shouldn't do, he does. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. It's the human condition. And so for Nehemiah, when he saw that the people, once they heard the word of God and they emotionally responded to it, but then when he got busy with his work and then when he came back and he observed the people, as it says in Nehemiah 13 in our passage, he saw that they were still practicing the things that were against the word of God. They were still breaking the Sabbath. They were working on it. They were doing business and trading. And they were... Their marriages were mixed faith marriages, right? And also mixed race marriages, right? And so he took action. If you look in verse 15, 17, 19, and 21, 15, 17, 19, and 21, there are four significant events where Nehemiah specifically recorded how he took action. He warned the Jews, all the people, verbally. In verse 15, in verse 17, he went to the nobles, the leaders, and he said he, he confronted them about this sin because even the nobles were, not, were breaking the Sabbath. And in verse 19, because that wasn't working, what he did was he took matters into his own hands and he shut the doors of the city gate. That's, he basically closed the city down, right? Uh, there, in certain cities, there are these things called blue laws. And these laws are where there are cities in America where the entire town shuts down on Sunday. So if you, were, if you wanted, if you were living in that city and you wanted a Starbucks that Sunday, you would get it. <laughs> it's against the city law, <laughs> right? That's what happened. Nehemiah shut the doors. Uh, in verse 21, he even went to the people, the outsiders, who were coming into the city to do business with those who were living in the city, and he warned them. Because after he closed the city down, they came to the walls, and they were, like, they were waiting in the dark, hoping that some Jews would come out and do business with them. 
And then basically Nehemiah, Nehemiah finds them in the dark, waiting for the Jews. It's not creepy at all, right? And he says, what are you doing here? Get out of here or else I'm going to put my hands on you, meaning I'm going to arrest you. You're, going to bre you're breaking our city law and you're going to get arrested. And that's when they never came back, <laughs> right? That's what's happening here. You see, in some ways, it's, it's so normal and we can relate to this. I mean, you know, you try to, have you ever tried to change? It's hard, right? It's hard. Um, this is what he did. And in some ways, it's like, there's almost no God. Where, where is God in verses 15 through 21? It seems like Nehemiah is just trying on his own, just trying to make things work. And he's trying this and trying that. He's meeting with these people and that people. Where is God? Right? It seems very discouraging in some ways, right? Especially after Nehemiah, he's not a stupid guy, right? He's a prophet of the Lord, chosen by God. So he remembers how when the word of God was read by Ezra, how people, they, re they wept. They had this profound emotional reaction. And yet still, by the end of Nehemiah, it seems like nothing has changed. You ever hear that? Right? when you're trying to create some, something positive in your family or in your workplace, and then you, you, you did a lot, just like Nehemiah in verses 15, 17, 19, and 21, and yet there are people who say, well, there's really nothing different here, right? Let me tell you why the Sabbath was so important to them. The Sabbath, essentially, was one of the clearest ways of determining whether you really trusted in God or whether it was just a cerebral theology to you. Let me say that again. Keeping the Sabbath for the Jews, right? Not breaking the Sabbath was a matter of whether you really trusted in God or whether trusting in God was just an idea that you believed in because you lived in a society that believed in that. And that was the easiest way to survive and make a living in that kind of a society. Unless you wanted to go to a different race of people and start a brand new life there with people you don't know and work that you don't have connections with. So conventionally, it would be far easier for you to ascribe to that system of thought in, in the Jewish state right, in order to make a living. Right? But if you kept the Sabbath, it showed that it was one of the ways that evidence that you really trusted God with your life. Because guess what? If you cease to work on the Sabbath as a Jew, it was basically you saying, I will lose any kind of money and business that I can have on Sunday, or, I'm sorry, on the Saturday, right? But I trust that God will provide for me. He's going to make it work. He's going to make the numbers work, right? I may project, man, if I work on Saturday, then I'm going to get all of this, right? If I work on the seventh day, this is how much I can make. But for the Sabbatarian Jew, right, he would be like, well, this is how much I can make. That's true, but I'm not going to worry about that because I serve a God who is real and alive and he's going to take care of me. And I'm going to follow what he says and he's going to provide he will make everything work out. That's what it was. Now, I know your question. 
Does this apply to us today? Should we be living like this? And <clears throat> I'm sorry to say, I'm going to have to frustrate you guys a little bit. It's still in discussion. <laughs> but I'm going to give you four views, four approaches to the Sabbath. The problem that everybody runs into in the four views is which day? Does the day apply? And which day is it, if it does? Right? But what's encouraging, okay, it's a little frustrating that there's no consensus, really, but what's encouraging is that all the four views, all of them say that the whole point of the Sabbath is to keep it holy. That's the point. That's the encouragement, right? It's to keep it holy. Meaning, even those who say, yes, you must keep, you, I'm going to give you the most extreme view, the first view. People say, all Christians should keep Saturday holy. These are the Adventists, right? The Seventh-day Adventists, right? They worship on Saturday, not Sunday. Saturday is the holy day for them. And their argument is from creation. Because God instituted on creation, it's not just for the Jews, it's for all of people. Because God didn't create just the Jews in creation, he created everybody on earth. So the argument for the Adventists is that since the Sabbath was instituted in creation, it applies to all people everywhere during all periods of time in history, including today. That's their argument. Their argument is from creation. And another argument, which was really interesting, is that in ancient treaties back, back in the day, the person who was making the contract, right, they would put a sign of their contract, of who they were, in the middle of the entire contract. So if there were 10 things right, in the contract, Someone in ancient times would put the key thing that basically symbolized and signified them and their contractual relationship with the other person in the middle of the contract. For us, where do we sign? At the end. For ancient cultures during this time, it was in the middle. And the Seventh-day Adventists, they argue that since the keeping of the Sabbath law is in the middle of the Decalogue, it's in the middle of the Ten Commandments, that was God's way of using the ancient cultural contract to put his sign of the covenant in there. That's their argument. It's a pretty good argument, actually. Right? Um, and he's saying that's why it must be kept. Right? The problem with the main... There, there are some holes in that argument, but the major problem that I've noticed with the Seventh-day Adventists perspective on the Sabbath is that they completely leave out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is nowhere in the argument when it comes to, hey, you should keep the Sabbath. That's a big problem because all of Scripture points to Christ. He said it himself, right? Moses and the prophets, it all points to me. That's what he said. The second view is the Calvinist view. And of course, we're Presbyterian, so we love the Calvinist view, right? Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it, this is what, they, what it believes, right? What it states. 
For the Calvinist, Sunday is the Sabbath. And basically, I'm, I'm kind of reducing it a little bit. I'm being a little bit reductionistic. But basically, the Seventh-day Adventists, they say Saturday is it should be holy. We should keep it like the Jews do. The, for the Calvinist, they say Sunday should be basically like that. That's what it says, right? Now, I'm leaving a lot out, but that's the idea. I'm showing you that the most extreme one toward uh, keeping the Sabbath is the Adventist, and then the next one is the Calvinist view, right? And the Calvinist view, they, 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 have, these, they have a distinction called, the, the way that they argue this is that they have a distinction called the ceremonial law and the moral law, right? And what that means is the ceremonial law and the civil laws refer to all the laws that are specific to the Jews as a nation, as a race of people during the Old Testament times. And for the Calvinists, they say when Christ died on the cross, everything that has to do with the ceremony and civil laws, everything that has to do with the Jewish nation, right, as a race of people, all of that Christ fulfilled on the cross, and it has no bearing on us today. So when the temple veil was torn, and Christ made a way for all believers to come to God through him, and instead of through the Old Testament system of sacrifice, right? those are what we're calling the ceremonial and civil laws. Now the moral law is what the Calvinists uh, calls those laws in the Old Testament that Christ has fulfilled but, not has, but has not canceled out. So it still has bearing on us today. The moral law, we still need to keep. For example, thou shalt not murder. Just because Christ died on the cross doesn't mean that you can start killing people now. Right? That is not cool. And in fact, the traditional Calvinist view is not only that thou shalt not murder, but all of the Ten Commandments is the moral law of God. It's not exclusively the moral law, but it's a summary of the moral law. And every one of those Ten Commandments is God's moral law that still applies today. That's the Calvinist view, right? And of course, for the Calvinist, you... It says that you can't work on the Sabbath and you can't recreate on the Sabbath, meaning you can't like play sports and do that kind of stuff. Um, the Calvinist also argues that God rested from the work of creation, not from all work. So that's an important distinction because when God rested from the work of creation, he if basically he finished a very specific work right, that he did only during that time. He didn't rest from all work of all time. So after he rested on the seventh day, God still works in upholding creation, in sustaining creation, in providing for creation. So God is still working, and he was still working on the seventh day, but he wasn't working, he was doing, he, was, he ceased his work on creation. And the Calvinist makes that distinction. And Christ's work of redemption, he, he finished. He said when he died on the cross, he said it is finished. Right? So there's an argument there that when, as God finished his work, right, in creation, 
So Christ also on the cross finished his work of new creation, right? And so the Calvinist argues that just as God rested and Christ rested, so we need to rest. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which it should be. And that's why since Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, right, he went to the grave on Friday, he stayed in the grave through Saturday, and on Sunday he rose again. That's why we worship, because that was God's new act of creation. That's why we rest, right? Okay. The other things that the Calvinist points to is that in the New Testament, they start pointing to how the early church in Acts, they started worshiping, and this phrase is, it opened, it comes up repeatedly on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, they worshiped. On the first day of the week, they brought offering, right? And so the, for the Calvinist, he's saying that since the apostles and the first church, the first Christians, they worshiped this way in Acts, therefore we should as well. And this was also the practice of the reformers. For example, Martin Luther, he said, God has appointed a day of rest, and on that day our bodies are to rest from physical labor. It is not enough, however, that you only rest. You are also to keep this rest holy. The commandment does not say you shall be idle or get into mischief on the day of rest, but rather you shall keep it holy. So you see, I know that there is an idea today that just because we are allowed to rest on Sunday, that we can also rest from worship and from reading the Word of God and from prayer and from fellowshipping with God's people. That is not the Calvinist Reformed definition of worship, of rest. Rest isn't about, I'm going to skip worship and go to the golf range or go to the arcade center, right? That's not rest. At least that wasn't for Luther and it wasn't for the Reformers. Rest was rest, you, you, they, they insisted that we need to physically rest from work, but also the rest needed to be holy. And we needed to find our rest in Christ, not in worldly pleasures, right? That's the Calvinist view. And that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. That's what I grew up with. And that's what I believe when I was under the tutelage of my parents as a child. The third view, is the Lutheran view. And the Lutheran view says there is actually no day that should be holy. Right? No particular day should be kept as holy. But the word of God should be used in any of those days. Right? But there is no New Testament law that says you need to keep Sunday as the holy day, as the new Sabbath. And they also argue from creation. And the last view is kind of similar to the Lutheran view. This is the free church view, or the Baptist view. Or it, it can also be called the fulfillment view, right? And this is, they, they say something very similar to the Lutheran view. They basically say there is no day that the Bible commands us to keep as holy, right? Because that would go into legalism, right? But they say that depending on your context, because Christ fulfilled the law, right? And even Paul said he needs to be all people, 
all things to all men, right? The fulfillment view says, depending on your context, you should keep the Sabbath or you should not keep the Sabbath. So if you're with people who keep the Sabbath, you need to keep the Sabbath with them. But if you are people who don't keep the Sabbath, then don't keep the Sabbath with them, right? But don't be, don't be a rogue person in the midst of people who keep or do not keep the Sabbath and do the opposite, <laughs> right? Don't do that, right? And they base their argument on the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, that he is the Sabbath rest. He himself, as a person, is the Sabbath rest, right? And they say believers are free to rest from work one day in seven, right? But they're also free not to rest, right? There may be times if uh, we are in the presence of fellow believers who believe in Sabbath keep keeping, right? And if we are, we should do what they do for the glory of God in order that we can help them to grow in God and draw closer to God. So that is the fulfillment view. How should you come away with this? What's the takeaway, right? Right now, as I've lived my life after leaving the household of after leaving my parents' home, I've taken more of a fulfillment view, right? That's how I live my life, right? That's why, you know, I don't mind going out to a coffee shop on a Sunday, or I don't mind um, going out to eat on a Sunday, right? I don't mind that. But it, when I'm with my parents, my parents re recently visited for about three weeks. And with my parents, I kept the Sabbath the way that they taught me to keep the Sabbath and the way they keep it. Because for me, the way I understood it was I'm being a Jew to a Jew and a Greek to a Greek, right? The Jews, they insisted on Sabbath keeping, but the, the Greek Christians in the New Testament, they didn't because they never grew up with that, right? And Paul never required that of Gentile Christians, right? Um, that's where I am, but after studying this, I have to honestly say, I'm not going back to the Christian Sabbath view, but it definitely wants me, I definitely want to look into it more. And I encourage you to do the same. Is to actually restudy it and see for yourself, study the passages, passages of scripture and um, depend on the people who have dug the truths of scripture richly before you and look into it and really see for yourself which way you should go. And remember, this is not about law-keeping, right? This is not about law-keeping. This is about loving the Lord as best as we can. Now, I have to say, honestly, maybe this is a little sinful, but I'm really proud of you guys. As a, as a brother, as an equal, I'm really proud of you guys because of everything that God has been doing here in this congregation in worship, in discipleship, and in mercy. Um, and I think this is basically the next step in terms of not being more holy, but in terms of our spiritual growth as a congregation. I think probably we've never really thought about it this thoroughly. Maybe some of you have, right? I don't want to assume. But if you haven't, I think it's really important for you to think about it. Think about all the four views and really seek out prayerfully. Don't come at, don't come at it with predisposed uh, beliefs. 
but come at it like a child, like Jesus Christ invites us, right? As children who say, basically, God, I know nothing about this, even though you may know verses and you may know which passages to go to to argue from whatever, right, in order to figure this issue out, but come at it genuinely say, God, I am your child. I don't know anything. Can you teach me? And actually study these passages again and really see which way you should go. Because as it was true for the Jews, the Sabbath will determine, it's, it's one of those key issues that really classically connects theology with life. You know that classic disconnect that happens when you believe all the right things and yet your life doesn't really live by it. The issue of the Sabbath, right, it actually is one of those things that connects the two worlds and makes it one. And it's really profitable for all of you guys to go through this and move from conviction from the scriptures because remember what the New Testament says. Whatever is not from faith is what? Is sin. So I want to tell you, if you keep the Sabbath not from faith in what the Word of God is saying, if you are not convinced from the Word of God that you should keep the Sabbath, you're sinning. Right? If you are not convinced from the Word of God that you should not keep the Sabbath, you're sinning. So you see, the issue is not which side are you on. The issue are are you going to come to a, a point in belief and conviction from what, you, from what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you from the pages of the Word of God itself? Or are you going to let practicality rule you or tradition, right? Are you going to fall back on what you grew up with and what you experienced or what other people think that you value, what they think, your celebrity pastors or your closest friends? Or are you going to let your the Word of God determine what you believe about the Sabbath, right? It's key. Or will you allow your pressing needs, the need to make more money, will you allow that to govern whether you keep the Sabbath or not, right? It's very important. God does provide. And there is, I'm not saying, I hope I'm not miscommunicating, miscommunicating right now. There is no one position that I'm advocating for, right? Whatever you do, you do from faith in the Word of God. That's my concern, that you don't go about this issue from, practic- from pragmatism or from tradition. You go about it from the very Word of God. And there's a second part to this about family, but I had no time today to fit it in. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today and allowing us to worship and to look into your word and consider how we can be in more accord with your will. And we pray, God, that you you start a fire in our hearts and in our minds, a hunger and a humility and a desire for wisdom and knowledge of you. So that when we come to this issue, that we may not allow pragmatism or tradition to cause us to be dismissive toward something like this. But that we really search the pages of your word. And that we come to a point where we move and we obey upon 
conviction upon faith. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please arise with me as we sing our response song.